1: In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn, and the next week, it's mine.
2: You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. This is the story of Wilma June Nissen. Wilma was born on October 19th, 1954 in San Francisco to Charles Clarence Nissen and June Simmons Bradford. She was one of two daughters, and she had a sister named Mona who was unable to hear or speak. When Wilma was eight years old, her mother abandoned her and Mona, and their father, Charles, was able to maintain full custody of the girls. However, that's the extent of it. Despite being physically present in Wilma and Mona's lives some of the time, Charles severely neglected the girls. Wilma and Mona went without the basic necessities, think food, water, access to a restroom, and never attended school while in their father's custody. Instead, Wilma and Mona were locked in a bedroom closet for hours upon end, day after day, while Charles worked. And this was Wilma's life for two years. It's not hard to imagine that this heartbreaking and unnecessarily cruel environment eventually took a toll on Wilma's overall well-being. You know, we're talking mentally, physically, spiritually. Her father's neglect had such a negative impact on her that by the time she was 10 years old, Wilma wasn't able to read or write and she was unable to eat with a fork. Let that sink in. Wilma had been so deprived that at 10 years old, she didn't have the motor skills to use a fork.
1: That's, of course, an obvious delay for a 10-year-old. Was there any type of specific diagnosis that was given in any of the source material as to where this delay may have stemmed from?
2: None of the sources specifically state what it could have been or an actual diagnosis, but you have to remember this is the late 50s and early 60s, so we're just going to have to take it for what it is. She was unable to read or write or even use a fork. Unfortunately, the horrors of Wilma's childhood didn't end there. The neglect further escalated when Charles eventually lost his job. The three Nissans went on to lose their home and had to move into a car together. And it's here living in a car that Wilma was tasked with the responsibility of scouring the streets for food for the three of them. All the while, Mona was imprisoned in the car's
1: trunk. We don't have a lot of material as to what exactly this looked like for Mona, but you can imagine that it was pretty horrific. We do, however, have the article that mentions this trunk imprisonment in the show notes. Absolutely,
2: and I'm so glad you acknowledge that because... This little girl essentially went from being locked in a closet all day and all night to being locked in a car trunk. It's just horrific. And it really shows the scale of neglect and abuse that these girls went through. There's actually a quote from Blythe Blomendahl. He's an investigator for the Lyon County Sheriff's Department. And this quote was made years after Wilma's murder. But I want to include it here because I feel like it truly captures the sadness and depravity that Wilma experienced in her young life. He said, this girl, if it wasn't for bad luck, wouldn't have any luck. If Wilma was here today growing up as a child, you would feel so sorry for her. You'd want to just pick her up and take her home. And it seems like authorities agreed because in 1964, California Child Services removed Wilma and Mona from their father's care. I just want to acknowledge that this is really where our information on Mona, Wilma's sister, ends. We don't know where she ended up. We don't know what happened to her. And it's sad. But as we continue on, we realize, at least with Wilma's story, that because they didn't have any family to care for her, they you know, were split up and entered into the foster care system. Wilma went on from foster family a foster family. She lived with Marshall and Maxine Holt in Anaheim, California in 1964 all the way until 1966. She was then placed in several other foster homes until 1967. And that's when she went to live with Vincent and Alice Haas, who were her final foster parents in Seal Beach, California. Again, I feel like I'm going to be repeating this a lot, but there aren't too many details about Wilma's life, especially between her last foster placement and her first marriage six years later. However, what we do know is that Wilma acquired the nickname Boots because she was known to hitchhike from place to place. We also know that she worked as a sex worker as a means of survival before her 1973 marriage to Donald Eugene Wellington. The Newlywoods lived in the Hollywood area and welcomed a son named Donald Wellington Jr. a year later on December 12th, 1974.
1: At this point in Wilma's life, it essentially seemed like she'd kind of hit her happily ever after. You would think that. But
2: investigators believed that Wilma lived with Don Wellington for a total of two years, or at least until October 1975, because It's then that she moved in with another man named Robert Irving in Long Beach, California. Two years later, Wilma and Robert married on June 21st, 1977, and they were living and working at a shop located at the intersection of Bellflower and Artesia in Bellflower, California. Wilma gave birth to a daughter that same year named Crystal, who now goes by Chrissy, at a Long Beach hospital on August 18th, 1977. Unfortunately, the cycle of foster care continued because at some point during all of this, Wilma's children were taken away from her by local jurisdictions and put into foster care themselves. Although this is such a horrible thing for any parent to go through, there is one small silver lining in all of this. Vincent Alice Haas eventually adopted Crystal Chrissy, as I mentioned earlier, shortly afterward. And if you remember, they're the same family who fostered Wilma until she got out of the system herself. So it was kind of like her foster parents took care of her daughter as their granddaughter in a way.
1: That's such a silver lining, if you think about it, in a rough situation.
2: Around this time, investigators believe Wilma went to San Diego, where she lived for a short time in a camper parked on the street near Seven Fifty One Fifth Avenue. And it's here that she met 54-year-old Charles Inman Belt. But remember, she's in her 20s at this time. So he's significantly older, at least double her age. And we don't really know how he treated her. We just know that she met him and they were together from this point onward. During the spring of 1978, Wilma left California and headed east across the United States, and ended up in Atlanta, Georgia. This was her first time living in a different state in her young life. Wilma didn't go alone, though. Charles joined her, and together the couple both lived with his mother Juanita Belt at 582 Techwood Drive, otherwise known as Roosevelt House, in Atlanta, Georgia. Charles is believed to be the last known person to have seen Wilma alive in 1978. This was believed by detectives for a number of decades. When interrogated by investigators, he told them that Wilma left his mother's apartment just a few days after arriving in Atlanta, and he never saw or heard from her again. When questioned about this and questioned about why he wouldn't report her as missing, he went on to explain that he thought Wilma went back to the San Diego area, you know, where they met, and. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to confirm it. Only decades later did investigators piece together that at some point after Wilma left Atlanta, she traveled west to Sioux Falls, Iowa. And it's here that she began working once again as a sex worker. None of the resources say what took Wilma to Iowa. It's not like it borders Georgia, but that's where she ended up. And we do know that in addition to her married names of Wilma Wellington and Wilma Irvin, Wilma sometimes used aliases including Amy Irvin, Amy Belt, Wilma Belt, or Amy Nissen, at least according to the Lyon County Sheriff's Office.
0: Get more from your store with Safeway's Fresh Pass program and enjoy more services like unlimited free delivery and all your grocery needs. More exclusive perks like 5% off every day on your favorite organic or open nature items across the stores and more rewards that never expire. Get Safeway's Fresh Pass to enjoy exclusive perks, unlimited free delivery, and more. You can start your 30-day free trial today. Visit Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass for program details. Service available in select areas. Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass.
2: So like I mentioned, there's a few months unaccounted for. But on Wednesday morning, October 4th, 1978, a telephone company employee laying cable along Highway 182, which is a country road near Lake Pahoa and West Lyon School in Western Line County, Iowa, he stumbled upon Wilma's badly decomposed and unrecognizable body. The telephone company employee almost missed Wilma's body because it had been concealed among the tall weeds. The local authorities arrived immediately and soon discovered the extent of Wilma's vicious murder. She wore white patent leather go-go boots. Remember, this is the 70s, late 70s, and a silver and gold friendship ring on her right ring finger. She also wore light green denim pants and bikini-style underwear that were wrapped around her left leg but she didn't have any clothes above her waist. Her feet were bound together with a braided hemp rope. Her bottom jaw was gone and only two teeth remained in her skull. Despite investigators searching the surrounding area and sifting the dirt in the ditch, nothing else was found. Not Wilma's missing jaw and teeth or her missing garments and other personal belongings. I just want to further underscore this because it's a big deal. No evidence was present at the crime scene except for her body, the pants and underwear, and the hemp
1: rope. This is so frustrating because she was so clearly beyond violated, mutilated even. And there's not much to go off of at all. Really nothing besides what they left her bound with.
2: And that's exactly what investigators thought. It really caught the investigator's attention right away. Here's a quote from Blythe Blomendahl. He's the same officer I quoted earlier in today's episode. But here he really explains the reason that this is a big deal. He says, quote, In every crime scene, something is taken and something is left behind. At this crime scene, everything left behind seems to be personal to Wilma, not personal to the killer end quote. And he's really saying that the lack of evidence points to the ditch as a secondary location rather than the scene of the actual murder. That reasoning and the level of decomposition that Wilma's body had undergone made investigators believe that her body had been left there between June and August of that year, 1978. But police didn't acknowledge this information for decades, and only recently, we're talking within the last five years, have investigators released that information to the public. Investigators have since elaborated, stating that the position of Wilma's body suggests that she was not killed at that particular spot, and instead, the offender used the rope around her ankles to pull her into the ditch from a nearby area or vehicle. Blythe Blomendahl goes on to say, "Quote: That's why her arms come forward." Her hands are forward and her hair is forward. The body is being dragged by the feet into the ditch. To me, it's an obvious sign that the body is deceased, being dragged face down. End quote.
1: Make no mistake, like this story is so difficult to talk about. And these details are really gruesome. And what you were just describing paints a picture of how little these perpetrators took into account Wilma's humanity as a human being. You're right. And details like this aren't
2: something that we like to talk about. But because, and, you know, I'm not giving anything away here. Her case is unsolved. Because of that fact, I feel like these details need to be told for the listeners, for anyone who may share Wilma's story with others. These are the details that can help us catch who did this to her. Furthermore, the medical examiner who conducted the 1978 autopsy noted a dislocation of Wilma's right elbow and a suggestion of a dislocation of her cervical vertebra, which could have happened after death. And this information, once again, is significant. Investigators believe that it suggests that Wilma may have struggled with her killer or killers. Once again, our favorite Blythe Blomendahl is quoted as saying, quote, I think that the possibility is high by the dislocation, by the fact that her hands are free. If this is a person capable of fighting back, there may be DNA under
1: her fingernails. I think we finally have found the benefit to investigators looking at this case again in a 21st century light.
2: And to that point, because her body was recovered and this possible DNA under her fingernails was recovered back in 1978, they really couldn't do anything with it for decades, really. Because Wilma hadn't been identified at this point in the investigation, Investigators didn't have any idea of her background or what she may have gone through in her life.
1: Essentially, what they had was a female body. She wasn't from the area. They had no idea who she was.
2: And it remained that way for nearly three decades. During that time, Wilma was only known as Jane Doe. The physical evidence at the body dumping site was all- the Sheriff's Department had to go on in this case. Fortunately, that all changed when a fingerprint match was made on January 31st, 2006. A Des Moines laboratory technician matched Jane Doe's left thumbprint to a print card from the Los Angeles Police Department, and Lyon County officials suddenly had a name Wilma June Nissen. Six months later, memorial services for Wilma were held on June 3, 2006, at Riverview Cemetery in Rock Rapids, Iowa. Father Jeff Schleisman, pastor at Holy Name in Rock Rapids and St. Mary's in Larchwood, presided over the ceremony. And in a touching tribute to one of their foster children, Wilma's final foster parents, Marshall and Maxine Holt, attended the service. Craig Benson, the Lyon County Sheriff who worked this case when Wilma was found, also attended. And I really think that their presence at her memorial are big examples of how Wilma touched so many people's lives, even in the short 23 years that she was alive. And despite her now getting her name back 30 years later, there were still questions surrounding her murder. Primarily, who would have harmed Wilma and why? The more that investigators looked into Wilma's time while in Iowa, the more they learned about her time as an escort. She worked for a company called Playgirls or Playmates, and it's here that she made friends with other dancers, escorts, or sex workers. As it turns out, the escort service that Wilma worked for hosted a number of parties in and around Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and in Lyon County, Iowa, during the summer of 1978. And it's through these parties that Wilma met a number of people, one of whom investigators believe to be the suspect in her murder. And I want to take a moment here to pause and think of Wilma and her job as a sex worker have been murdered in the late seventies, nineteen seventy eight specifically. You would think that her case would bump up against people unwilling to look into it and investigate any
1: further because of her
2: lifestyle and the choices that she made.
1: I think what you're trying to say here is something that those of us who are involved in the true crime community know all too well: that cases that involve sex workers unfortunately, sometimes can be overlooked or not taken as seriously, um, a lot of victim blaming. We all know that that happens in these cases. And we also all know that when you look at statistics, unfortunately, sex workers are often victims as well.
2: Fortunately for this case, Blythe Blomendahl doesn't feel the way many other investigators felt back in the 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s. He wants to make it known that justice does not discriminate. And I actually have a quote from him. He says, quote, a crime is a crime regardless of who the victim is, regardless of who the bad guy is. They all deserve your best effort and this will get our best effort come hell or high water. And as far as I'm concerned, come hell or high water, this will get solved, period. I accept nothing less, end quote. Thank God for Blythe Blomendahl. I feel like every case needs a Blythe Blomendahl.
1: Absolutely. That's a really strong statement. Strong and confident. That's what you want in a lead investigator. Yes, that's his job, but... This clearly is a man that's going to be doing his job tirelessly to solve this case for Wilma and for her family.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermo hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment.
2: And it even goes beyond that for this investigator. In several quotes in the source material that are linked in the show notes, he says that he feels like he knows Wilma. This amount of time that he spent and invested in her case has made her precious to him.
1: I just don't think it's that often that you hear of a case that's 45 years old with this much confidence and determination behind it. And to be honest, it's really kind of encouraging.
2: As a recap for our listeners, a lot happened in 2006. In January, she was identified as Wilma June Nissen. In June, she... Had a memorial hosted in her honor, in her memory. And also in 2006, authorities submitted information about her murder to VICAP. This collects, collates, and analyzes violent crimes for similarities. By doing this, investigators hoped to open up the possibility of finding any other cases with similar causes of death or manners of disposal. On top of the VICAP submission, authorities sought assistance from an FBI profiler who's working to identify characteristics of the killer based on the crime scene and the manner of death. This collaboration with the FBI profiler led investigators to exhume Wilma's body in 2007. Unfortunately, the exhumation process really depends on the condition of the remains when they were recovered and if they were dry versus wet and every little thing that us as lay people wouldn't necessarily think about. Fortunately for investigators, her clothes, the underwear and the pants have been stored for many years and those can even be tested for new traces of DNA. Wilma's exhumation gave investigators Wilma's manner of death. However, the viciousness and definite manner with which she was killed aren't and have not been released by investigators. They refuse to divulge how she was murdered because only the killer would know
1: those details. And really, it's all they have to go off of at this point. If you think about it, in this case, they don't have a lot of evidence. We talked about that. So with that, they don't have a lot of information that they've garnered from evidence that they can kind of keep in the metaphorical arsenal to have as telltale signs if somebody mentions something that they didn't release to the public, Right. We all kind of know that process or that practice where they withhold some important information so that if anybody that they're talking to that may have been involved says something that they know relates to information they haven't distributed to the public, they know they've got something to look into, right? In this case, the cause of death is one of those few things that they do have to withhold.
2: Now, investigators may have withheld the cause of death, but they did give the general public some new information. These results led investigators to suspect that more than one person was involved in Wilma's murder, and things stayed that way for a number of years, and then investigators hit a major speed bump when federal grant funding for the cold case unit was exhausted in December of 2011 which was not good news for Wilma's case or any cold cases. Because this funding allows investigators to assign agents to investigate Wilma's case and others like it as new leads develop or as technology advances. But they weren't going to be able to have any of that because they just didn't have the money, the resources to pay for it. Fortunately, Blythe Blomendahl and the rest of the Lyon County Sheriff's Office weren't ready to give up on Wilma's 38-year-old cold case. They worked on it despite the lack of funding. And then a major development was made on May 2nd, 2016. Investigators released a photo of one of the two women they believe is responsible for Wilma's death. The suspect whose photo was released was known for robbing other sex workers. And they believe that Wilma's murder was the result of robbery. That she was killed by people who wanted to steal the money she had earned while working at a Lyon County party, and she died as a result of it. Investigators went on to describe the suspect they believed to be responsible for Wilma's murder. They describe her as a Black female who went by the stage name of Sugar. She worked as a dancer, an escort, and a sex worker at parties in and around Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and in Lyon County. Iowa in the summer of 1978. Now investigators know the suspect's real name. They know Sugar's name, but they're not ready to release it publicly. Like Paige mentioned before, you know, this is one of their sole facts they have about this case that they can keep close to the vest and wait for someone to come forward and independently identify her. On top of that, the sheriff's department has been trying to track down the identity of another dancer, another sex worker, who went by the stage name of
1: Peaches. So you were just talking about how they now believed that two people were involved in the murder of Wilma. Is Peaches our second suspect? She is the second suspect, but here's the
2: problem. They've never released her photo because They don't know who she is. They don't know her true identity. Peaches is her stage name. And they know that she hung around Sugar, but they really don't know anything beyond that. And because of the nature of their work as sex workers, their legal name and other information really wasn't accessible. And really, that's where we're left 43 years later. We have two suspects and no further information. A woman, a mother of two, was murdered in cold blood and we still don't have answers. And that's why I think it's our responsibility as a true crime podcast to share her story, to share her face and her pictures and her name. If you or anyone you know has information about her case, there's a $10,000 reward offered for anything leading to an arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Wilma's death. There's an anonymous hotline. That number is 712-472-8334. You can also contact Detective Jerry Berkey with the Lyon County Sheriff's Office at 712-472-8300. Wilma may be gone, but we're not going to stop fighting for her.
1: May she rest in peace. And that's where we'll leave it for this episode. Until the next episode, you know where to find us at the murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the murder Pod at gmail.com and the murder com. And if you haven't already, go ahead
2: and rate review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing.
1: Your five stars mean everything.